Hey guys, Justin Bell here on Drive to Win, live from the win in Las Vegas. Uh, well, I don't know about you, what an extraordinary weekend it was. Memorial Day, I hope we all took a little time to reflect on the people that sacrificed so much that we could actually not only live the lives we lead, but also sit on the sofa for about six hours and watch some of the best motorsport in the world. That's what I did with my Sunday. We had the Indy 500 and then, of course, the Monaco Grand Prix. Just outrageous racing. And boy, do I have a great show coming up for you. Ex-Formula One star David Coulthard is going to join me from Monaco itself, where he is a resident. And then David Hobbs. Yeah, you know Hobbo. He not only was a tremendously successful racing car driver, but went on to really be the voice of Formula One as the color analyst on TV here in the United States for what seemed like decades. David uh, is retired now, but obviously watches every race and somehow seems to know as much as anyone on the planet about the nuances of Formula One. So very excited to get him on the show, especially to talk about the upcoming race in Barcelona. But let's talk Monaco. What an outrageous weekend it was for so many reasons. First of all, Monaco is one of the most historic races in, on the series. And if it was a race that was proposed in today's era, it simply would not go ahead. It's in the principality there. Prince Rainier rules the principality. It is a haven for the wealthy to come and play. But it's also one of the most historic racetracks with traditions. And that's why I think the drivers enjoy it so much. And it's also a place that when you're watching it, you go, God, if only I could have been A, that successful a driver, or B, as successful in business to have a place there because the jet set come to play and just the overheads from the TV cameras, I've never seen it before, as they curled around the top of the mountain, looked down on the palace and into the harbor where all those boats are moored up, every shape and size. Some of them are there with, I think I saw one with a Ferrari F40 on the bow, which is a really baller move, isn't it? To say, not only do I have my 200-foot yacht in the harbor at the Monaco Grand Prix, but I put one of my Ferraris on the front. So I just loved it. I, I really do get into it. It's probably my favorite pre-show on TV to watch because you see the drivers in this element and so many of them live there. And I can't wait to actually talk to DC, David Coulthard, about that. Uh, I, I wonder, what do they do? Do they... Do they race on a Sunday and then like see each other over a croissant and a coffee on the Monday? I kind of have this feeling that it's uh, this village of excellence and the ultra wealthy. But the broadcast really does show us that lifestyle. And down on the grid, just seeing the celebrities. Who did we have? We had, I mean, we saw Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Chris Rock was there. He was, he was looking called Orlando Bloom. He was heavily promoting his new uh, PlayStation movie, which actually at one point I was consulting on a little bit and it's a great story and he's obviously very excited to be a part of it. Uh, Martin Brundle on the Gridwalk got a chance to, to talk to him and it was like a one minute promo, which Martin had to shut off. But that is the nature of it. Formula One, Formula One attracts these incredibly uh, important celebrities in the world of entertainment and they go there, they got movies to shout about, but they'd rather do it on the grid amongst all those beautiful cars uh, Neymar, Tom Holland, Kylie Minogue. Well, she seems to be a, a constant at the big races. She's always there. And of course, I think she's great friends with the Red Bull team. Uh, she seems to be centrally uh, basing herself around them. But then the social media that spun off from 
the drivers was just incredible. Daniel Ricciardo seems to bring this level of excitement and enthusiasm. And obviously without the pressure of having to get behind the wheel of a Formula One car that weekend, he, I think, brings some levity to his teammates who are in this hot spot of this hot seat of performance and just lovely seeing Max uh, and and Sergio just laughing and they're playing with these radio control boats in the water, which they sank. And anyway, if you get a chance, check out, if you don't follow their social media, uh, make sure you do because it really brings the whole thing to life. Um, but really it was about qualifying and we're going to talk about the race uh, with DC in a moment in, in more detail, but qualifying at Monaco, everybody says it, it's about track position because overtaking is so hard. And when you watch qualifying, it, it, it was edge of your seat stuff. And I was trying to explain to, to my son about how, you know, everybody there goes into this race weekend believing on a street circuit they can pull it out. And I want you to think about that. It's, there are many other parallels, I guess, in sport where you start a weekend afresh. You, it's a unique environment on a street circuit. High-speed downforce does not count. So some of the aero balance that especially the Red Bulls have doesn't really give them an advantage. It's about mechanical grip, but it's also about unworldly commitment from the drivers. The way they have to attack and approach each corner is and I can tell you from my point of view, is at a different level to those that we would understand as road drivers. And that the, the difference between disaster or brilliance is literally a millimeter or so. And they had that great monitor uh, with Formula One on the broadcast. As they exited turn one, they would have this gauge, this, me, this um, monitor on how many inches they were away from the barriers. I mean, spectacular stuff. And they were rubbing the walls. I've never seen quite so many people touch a wall as they did during, especially during the race. But in qualifying, it was quite remarkable. As you progress in Monaco to Q3, where you have those few minutes to try and get your car to the most advantageous uh, grid position, I think during that session on last Saturday, we saw some of the most electrifying, unique, performances that maybe we've seen in motorsports in quite a few years. And it was up and down the grid. Now, you might ask yourself, if you watch that, uh, how was the Alpine with Esteban Ocon so good coming into Monaco? He was on it all weekend. Now, my personal position on that is when you come in, your car off the trailer somehow is working. The engineers have run, you've run your simulations. You've got it just right to the best of your knowledge with what you worked on coming off the last race. You get there and you have so little track time, you kind of hit the track and on your first couple of laps, you'll have a real indication of how good you're going. And really Esteban was on top of it throughout the weekend. Now there's a cumulative effect to that that I think is very important to follow. And as a driver, your confidence goes up every time you look at the timing sheets and they say, hey, mate, you're, you're P1 at halfway through the session. You're P2, you're P3. You're right there. Now, that applies to everyone all the way through the grid. But as you're getting to the point of pushing yourself, it's this inner confidence that we know, for example, Max has right at the front. That's a given. But in Esteban's point of view, he's in France. He's in the Alpine. It's a French team. And you're effectively in front of your friends and family 
you he he was able to to raise his game in a way that was outstanding. And the cynics might go, well, how is he able to do that? Because the car isn't that good anywhere else. But that's the magic of a street circuit. If you as a driver, and remember, they're all of sublime talent. If you are able to pull it all together and your driving style suits the car, you have to be so precise. When you turn into a corner, you have to know exactly where you're going to be at the exit. It sounds easy enough, but they're blind corners. You've got the curves, which really do load up the outside tires, allow you to get more grip and come off the corners. I was, I didn't know I'd ever cheer for him, but I was really cheering for him as the underdog that got his way to the front. And obviously we know how that ended. He ran all the way to, to third place, got a podium for Alpine, which just was outstanding. But then uh, Fernando Alonso was really the, the other story uh, that had me on the edge of the seat. At the beginning of the season, when they got that first podium, I think you, you arguably could have said, well, it's a little bit of a, a, an anomaly. We now know after 40 podium positions out of five races, it's not an anomaly. But how was he going to do in Monaco? And I reckon all the pre-race PR did indicate this. He believed he could have pole position there. I think last week I proposed that maybe Charles Leclerc would, but we saw that going upside down quickly. But when it came to Alonso out there on the track, you saw the way he managed his tires. He watched, he was watching on the monitors, you know, you could tell, analyzing his lap on the data. He went out and did probably one of the most perfect laps he has ever done around the Monaco track, and he got pole position temporarily. And when we were watching uh, Max go out, I was thinking, I don't know if he can do it. I don't know if there's a better lap in there. And then uh, we've got this great uh, simulation lap that I think you can be watching right now. And it's it's a comparison between where Alonso was and where Max was on that lap. And if you can imagine, they were running almost symmetrically through every corner. You could see how Max was using a little bit more of the road. He had the confidence to run it wide, but he was definitely behind Alonso as they approached the final sector of the track, which is a short one. At that moment, we saw something that you don't get to see too often, which is a driver dig into an inner place that only the superstars seem to be able to do. Whatever sport you're into outside Formula One, you've seen the elite athletes do this. They can just perform the impossible. And in that last sector, which isn't many corners, he launched away from Alonso comparatively coming out of the swimming pool sector. It's as though going into the final two corners, he just released off the brake earlier than ever before. He rolled the car through outrageous confidence as he came through up against the barriers and of course got pole position. It was probably one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And I was listening to a podcast actually yesterday that um, Tom Clarkson's podcast, which is excellent, the official Formula One, uh, inside Formula One. And they were talking about how important it is on these tires not to overheat them earlier. And there's two types of temperature you can get from a tire. You can get the external temperature, which raises very quickly by driving aggressively and bringing in too much grip and too much abrasion on the on the tires. You actually almost superficially heat the the carcass of the tire, but you of the outside of the tire. But really, you need to heat inside the tire, and this is something that very few teams have got right. And if you see outrageous qualifying performance come from the middle of nowhere, it's normally because they've managed to to curate the tire temperature buildup and the level of grip in the tire and 
I think Max pulled it off in that. It wasn't right the first three quarters of the lap, but it came in right where it counted. Uh, just very exciting. So uh, I think that was, uh, for, for me, the big part of the weekend that stood it stood it apart. And then, of course, in the race, uh, we'll jump into that a little bit. Uh, Red Bull did what they did and got the, got the front uh, top spot. However, in, you know, Formula One is all about business. It is a multi-million dollar business, billion dollar business, as we heard from Zach last week. And I was following one of the stories that I think has got many layers. And that is the fact that Aston Martin will be returning to, uh, Aston Martin with Honda engines will be returning to Formula One in 2026. Now, on the face of it, it sounds like a pretty natural deal to pull together, but consider this. Honda, with their history in Formula One, is has as much to um, acknowledge as a contributor to the su- success of our sport as any other partner. Uh, I think it was 1964 that they started in Formula One and on and off won every championship between 1986 and 1991 with Williams and McLaren. And then every driver's championship from 1987 to 91, and that was Prost. PK and Senna, three of the greatest to ever get behind the wheel of a Formula One car. So Honda's commitment was huge. They did also win a championship uh, with uh, Red Bull, and then they won actually as an en- only an engine supplier in 2022. And then they withdrew. Many reasons for that. Very complicated, I'm sure. So you'd say, why are they coming back now? Well, the regulations for the engine supplier have aligned with the philosophy, philosophy and vision of the Honda Motor Corporation, which is, it's all about sustainability and performance and these, uh, the eco fuels and it's, everything seems to align to bring them back in ahead of when we thought they might. But why Aston Martin and how are Aston Martin doing this? And that's really the fascinating part. It's not a deal that is as easy as it looks. Mercedes-Benz provide most of the engines for Aston Martin road cars. Uh, They actually are shareholders in Aston Martin. The gearbox and rear suspension on the Aston Martin Formula One cars is from Mercedes. So it's incredibly complex if you think about to integrate it. But when you dig into talking and listening to the team principals and the engineers, they're saying that if you want to be at the top in Formula One, you have to take as much under your own roof as you can. You have to have some autonomy from your supplier when especially that supplier is one of your main competitions. So you can see why they're doing it. But the real deciding factor, and I think this is this is something that over time we're going to understand and appreciate even more, and that is the significance and the leadership of Lawrence Stroll. Now, Lance Stroll, his son, races for the team and he's doing a fantastic job. But Lawrence Stroll's commitment to motorsport, in the beginning, you could have thought he's just another billionaire getting involved to play, but they're building this incredible technology center. They have their own wind tunnels, which are coming online. Their investment, his investment in it is extraordinary, especially when you consider this isn't a corporation. This is one man who's bringing this leadership to Aston Martin. The results speak for themselves, the way they're performing this year. But why would he risk everything? What a complex deal to pull together. And I think it can be summed best, like he he said in a statement. He said, the passion I have comes from excitement. When I get excited about something, 
I get very passionate. And when I get very passionate, I win. Those are kind of scary words when you think about it, because a man with his resources and the way he galvanizes the team, the way he probably puts systems in place, brings people together in a collaboration of, of performance and excellence, that is why Aston Martin are doing quite so well. So it'll be interesting to see. Oh, one other thing. What about Fernando Alonso? He's, he's already in his late 30s, 2026. That's three years away. He's going to be his early 40s. Do we think he's going to hang out? Do you think the lure of a Honda contract, the lure of maybe tipping them over the edge to be able to win world championships will keep him in a seat? It's a long time since we've had Formula One drivers over the edge of 40. If there's anyone that can do it, it will be Fernando, won't it? So we'll have to watch that. But anyway, why, aren't, why announce it so early? Well, I think it takes a long time to, to ramp up for these things and Aston need to you know, set about that integration. So very cool. Well, you can tell I'm back here at the win. There's so much. I think we have 187 days till we'll be sitting here on race day in Las Vegas for the inaugural Formula One race, literally on the streets around where I'm sitting, around the win. So much going on. But of course, the week before it kicks off, with the Concours at the win in Vegas. And I said it last week, I really urge you to, to follow along. Go to the website. It's just beautiful. The Concours is in total contrast to what happens here as a Formula One race, but it really does set the tone for a week of automotive and racing uh, spectacle. It is all about the most beautiful, prestigious, iconic cars pre-post-war, all the way through to what I think you'll see is maybe the most comprehensive collection of hypercars and supercars ever put in one place. And it's all happening right behind us here on the lush fairways of the golf course at the Wynn. Well, it's time to talk about the race at Monaco. And I really can't wait to bring in my first guest, David Coulthard. David is a hugely popular Scottish driver. He had 15 seasons in Formula One. Can you believe that? 13 wins, 62 podiums. And he, I remember most, A, the fact we're pretty much the same age, he's a little younger, but his career started just after mine in, in race cars, but he was so formidable in carts. And I remember that season in 2001 when he really did take the battle to Michael Schumacher, albeit finishing second in the championship. Anyone that can say they were on track with one of the most legendary drivers of our of our time is, is is a statement. It shows how good DC was. Now he's a very popular TV broadcaster. He is a man about town. It seems if there's a party or something happening, DC is always there. Well, fresh off the boat, probably on a spot of rosé, DC, welcome to Drive to Win, and th thanks for taking the time, mate. No, absolutely. It's uh, it's been a, a, a very busy few days of Monaco Grand Prix. I managed to catch up with Indy on Sunday night over a couple of beers with friends, and then I must confess I've I've been on what we would affectionately call in the UK a bender for the last <laughs> two days. So it's now now get get back to normal. Uh, get, get in the office briefly tomorrow before heading to Barcelona. Oh my God! At least you have a tan, right? It's that's the trick. If you have a tan for some reason, you just don't look as sickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, well, I was uh, at a couple of beach restaurants the last the last two days. So, uh, yeah, the benefit of the Mediterranean weather is, uh, yeah, the tan stops here basically. Ah. In fact, I'm not wearing a t-shirt. That's the color of my body. It's what, a, and with the beautiful mane of hair on the picture behind you, you're a whole different. You're trying to tell us something. That's what I think you are. 
I'm, I'm trying to anti-age, but failing miserably. Funny. So one of the things that I, sitting on the sofa at home, you know, while you're in Monaco at the weekend was Monaco always, and I have been there obviously for the race, Monaco always just fits the bill as the sexy place for people to go. The, the superstars are there, the celebrities. I mean, I know you live in town, but does the whole place really come alive that much on, on the race weekend? Yeah, you, you can really feel it in the, the last few days build up before the Grand Prix. You know, it takes them three months to build up the, the track and it takes them a month to put it away. So for four months of the year, you've always got something that tells you that this is no normal uh, principality if there is such a thing. But um, yeah, the, the Grand Prix was buzzing. Um, it takes a lot of discipline, as you know, to make sure, especially in, in our cases where, where we tend to be working at these events. So I... I I uh, do do everything I'm supposed to do, get myself tucked up in bed at a sensible time and then, you know, make the most of it Monday, Tuesday afterwards is my sort of tradition. Yeah, I, it's funny because people that in our position that you raced, and obviously you were in Formula 1, I wasn't, but the, you know, still doing sports cars, all our mates are out, right, on the Friday and Saturday night having a blast and saying, oh, we met these girls, we did this, we went out, we went to this party <laughs> and you're like, I'm the I'm the star and I'm going to bloody bed. But sort of <laughs> victory comes on a Sunday, yeah. doesn't it? It's tough. Still the same in TV, though, I guess. That's the thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I get friends that come in from, from all over, uh, and you know, I just see them uh, increasingly broken day after day <laughs> as they keep getting drawn into the nightlife. That's why I say I, I still pretty much operate as if I was racing. And as, as you know, you've got to be pretty disciplined and um, and make sure you don't get sort of drawn, you know, pulled from pillar to post. But uh, yeah, in Monte Carlo, it is a special Grand Prix. Uh, the harbour was buzzing. Grandstands all looked uh, pretty busy from where I was. And that's it. Box ticked for another year. Yeah, I know. Well, let's talk first of all about your job as a TV broadcaster, because it's a big broadcast now. It's a global broadcast. You get to ask the questions at the end and there was a shot and I could see you walking down behind the barrier with just a couple of laps to go, I guess getting into position for the interviews. Just as a behind the scenes thing, have you written your questions or is the producer sort of, because they're more on, on tune with what's happening in the last couple of laps, are they, are they helping you feed those to you? Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, you would actually. <laughs> In actual fact, I don't know what my first question is going to be. And even more worrying than that, usually when I'm listening to the answer, I'm thinking, I don't have a second question. <laughs> because you, know, I, I, you don't always know who the top three is going to be for certain until you get down there. And of course, I've lost radio communications because, um, uh, you know, I've left the, the comm box. But the benefit of Monaco is you, you can actually see the track as you're walking down uh, down the side of the pit lane. So we, we're trusted to really come up with, you know, whatever comes to our mind. And, you know, I, I just remind myself, uh, people are watching at home. Not all of them have driven racing cars. And to just keep it simple and keep it focused on on the events of what happened in the race um, so that's my simple formula. And uh, they keep uh, asking me um, to, to come back and do more. So they, they must be happy with it. Yeah, no, I love it. I knew we had more in common other than our slightly deviant hobbies. That Because that's exactly what I do. People say, are you ready? And I go, yes. What are you going to ask? I say, no rehearsals. I'm, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so, well, let's talk, let's talk about the race because 
I mean, from our position as a viewer, and maybe this is an interesting perspective for, for you because you're so involved, but as a viewer, it didn't really matter there that there wasn't a ton of overtaking because we knew that going in. So the expectations from that point of view are quite low, but the entertainment, the drama, the pit stops, the rain, it delivered on every angle. What's your overview of the whole race? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people um, who are, so, let's say, general fans of Formula One rather than hardcore fans would, would say, well, it's not a good race to, to watch, not, not just this one in particular, but you know, any Monaco Grand Prix. But I think that for the, for the purists and for the team and, and, of course, for the drivers, it's such a huge challenge. It's, if, even for you know, the, the team members, just logistically getting around Monaco, it just is much more difficult than any other race. So there's only 25 points or 26 points if you get fastest lap available like every other one. But the sense of achievement is off the scale. And, you know, I would definitely, you know, I was incredibly lucky to drive good cars in Formula One and good enough to, to win around here a couple of times. So that definitely is, is something that I will take with me to the grave when, when mm. you know, when you look back on your, your racing career, um, which wouldn't necessarily be the same feeling with some of the other circuits that, that we race on. Because Monaco, like Le Mans, like the Indy 500, is something that does stand out a bit more than Mid-Ohio or Thruxton or <laughs> Abu Dhabi, maybe, right? I mean, no, being yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, it does. It, it is. And, you know, I um, when I won the first time, Prince Rainier was still uh, active in the Principality. And so you go to the gala dinner in the evening. It's a black tie event. You really feel the connection with... The past because as we become ever more casual you know a few years ago i wouldn't be sitting here in a training shirt uh, having this conversation with you i'd probably have a shirt and a jacket on like you but you know everything's becoming a lot more chill nowadays isn't it but monaco is the constant that reminds us that this is a fast and glamorous sport and with the Cannes film festival happening the week before monaco you you get plenty of the uh, movie stars come along and and want to join the spectacle as well so let's talk about the superstars, not the celebrities, because they have their own role and they were pitching their wares quite hard on the grid lane for Martin, weren't they? <laughs> they were selling every show they could. But you you won against arguably the best of our younger generation, Michael Schumacher. Max is out there pulverizing everybody and his ability to dig deep and pull out that qualifying lap and then in the race and do what he does it just makes you think all the time he has that little bit in reserve. Is that the common denominator of the greats? I mean, you were there firsthand. Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the thing, um, you know, I, of course, always tried my best, but as I reflect on my, my racing career, the one thing that I was missing that I think the, the greats have is that absolute ability to just accept that's the car you have today and go out and extract a lap time. You know, I was always looking for perfection and, and balance and setup and, and I think that in itself, um, you, you know, sees you come up short um, on occasion. But Max is just blindingly fast. He really isn't phased at all by the, the the trappings of success and all of the distractions that are there. He's he's been absolutely groomed for success. Uh, his mother was a kart racer of of, of uh, real talent. His dad was a Grand Prix driver, and he he's just you know he's had the the, the hard yards of you know pounding around Europe in karting, and of course he hasn't been 
you know, he hasn't sort of been mollycoddled. He, he, you know, Jos famously was was tough on him, and he he wanted to prepare him for you know, the the demands of being a Grand Prix driver. I think he he learned from his own mistakes when he was at Benetton alongside Michael. He arrived a little half baked, maybe not as fit as he should have been, and you just don't get many second um, you know second opportunities in this sport. So you you've got to arrive and hit the ground running. And if uh, you know for the the listeners. When he got his first chance to step into the Red Bull in Barcelona, he went and won the Grand Prix. That's how ready he was. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's the sort of hallmark of the greats. Um, and there's also a kind of synergy as well, isn't there, with the likes of Senna. Um, and I think Schumacher didn't do Formula 3000. He did sports cars, didn't he? So mm. I think he went F3 sports cars and then into Formula 1. Senna went from Formula 3 to F1. Kimi Raikkonen did the same. Max did the same. They, you know, they kind of skip some of the the, uh, the lower formulas just because they're ready. And that while that childhood probably wasn't one that you and I would have enjoyed, I mean, because, I mean, you read the stories about the way Jos kept him out there in the pouring rain, freezing hands, but his cool, calm demeanor. I mean, you can't argue with the the net result. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's brilliant. Um, but you've been around also following a lot, all the while you've been doing TV a lot, Alonso's career, and... What's it like in the paddock to actually see him? Because he seems vibrant the whole time, like like the the second chance kid. And in his mind, as he says, he never went away. But having the car he has, is it just bringing a new vitality to the paddock in general? Because he looks so, so happy, so good. Yeah, you know, Fernando is a phenomenon, isn't he? he? He was, again, one of those young guys that, that came in, was part of Flavio Briatore's management uh, team and hit the ground uh, and, and and literally, you know, I think he was one of the youngest drivers to win a Grand Prix when he won in, in Hungary all those years ago. So uh, w- the only remaining driver on the grid uh, other than Hamilton that I've actually raced against because now this is 15 seasons since I stopped racing in Formula One. So, you know, there's a, a you, know, you know, I can relate to him. I can relate to the journey that he that he's come through. But I think the point you you mentioned there about he doesn't feel he's been away because he went and, and did uh, Le Mans and because he did Paris-Dakar and because he did uh, IndyCar, he kept himself a, as a racing driver. And with that great talent, when he got the opportunity to come back, then he's, he's showing, you know, must be really awkward for, for Lance Stroll. He, he gets rid of one four-time world champion and his dad brings in yeah. a double world champion. And he's he couldn't have known, of course, that the car was going to be as good as it is. But the in, in all credit to to um, Lawrence Stroll, he, he's methodically put together and enhanced the team of people there. Dan Fallows, uh, who was at Red Bull working alongside Adrian Newey, is probably the final piece of that jigsaw. Uh, and then they've, they've delivered an, an aero package that works. And, you know, they're about to uh, unveil their brand new state-of-the-art factory. They've announced that they're going to Honda in 2026. Uh, I'm not sure if Fernando would still be around in 26. That's, but, that's what I was asking. You know, that's what I was thinking for myself. He, it'll be awfully tempting to stay, but that would make him one of the oldest Formula One drivers in a long time. But he is Fernando, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, he is indeed. But there has to be a point in everyone's sporting career where you know the tide changes, and I just although physically he's he's in great shape you know, his eyesight and things like that must start to you know, lose lose its uh, sharpness. Um, what is he, 41 years old? Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here with my 
my glasses at Me 52. Uh, <laughs> you know, actually, my, my eyesight seemed to take a turn the minute I retired. Yeah. So maybe it's because you just don't, you know, you're not in that, that fighting physical form that, you know, and the natural aging process kicks in. But, you know, when Schumacher came back, he'd already stopped for, what, three seasons and he just wasn't as good uh, when, when he eventually came back. But mm. Fernando will eventually decide enough is enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think, and it may be obviously because of attrition, but I think he will win a race and it will be because he's right there. Wouldn't that be brilliant? I mean, I think even Max would like him to win a race. Yeah, they get along very well, actually, the two of them. So, um, of course, they're competitors, but there's a real respect there. And I think you're right. I think he he can and will win a Grand Prix uh, this season. And his consistency has been fantastic. And it'll just be a, a question of, you know, Red Bull, uh, even in pure pace, they're, they're not going to dominate every Grand Prix. So there, there may well be a race that the the Aston is, is just a little bit stronger. And there's no question that he knows how to win races. Mm. You obviously drove really good cars in Formula One, but you've also been in cars during your career where, well, we all have, where you go, uh, today, we, this weekend's my weekend, I'm on form, all, all the variables have come together, and I'm going to surprise people, even myself. And that was definitely the Alpine this weekend with uh, Esteban yeah. Ocon. Talk what that was like, because when, you, when I was watching the timing, I'm going, geez, this is consistent. He's constantly there. Um, so the podium is well-deserved. That brings an air of uh, sort of hope, doesn't it, to the paddock for the, re- for the best of the rest? Yeah, I think so. You know, although the team is called Alpine, um, you know, it's been in many different names over its, yeah. uh, you know, its, its time as a, as a Grand Prix team, but it is based in Enstone, as you know, in Oxfordshire. Mm. So it's very much a British team with, with French ownership. And, you know, the, the, the sort of French national team in that respect, because they've got uh, Ocon and Gasly, two French drivers. But yeah, I, I was, I thought Ocon drove beautifully all weekend. I was so surprised in qualifying when he suddenly went top of the top of the times. It was like, what happened? Where did the, where did the car come into that window? So I think given the nature of Monaco, you don't need as much efficiency on your downforce. Uh, the car mechanically obviously gives the drivers confidence. Um, so you couldn't get any further away uh, at Monaco than you know what you'd experience in somewhere like Monza, high speed circuit. So maybe they'll not be quite so strong there. But I think it, it was timely because there's a lot of pressure on on that team because of uh, the general lack of performance. So before before we let you go, Barcelona this weekend couldn't be any more different from from Monaco. I know there's upgrades coming, and but and you're going to be there, right? You'll be in Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nice place to go as well. Uh, a nice city. Mm-hmm. Isn't oh, it? it's great. Yeah. Um, do you see, who do you see being the best of the rest going into Barcelona? Um, well, Barcelona was historically the, the sort of proving ground, the testing uh, circuit up until the last few years where they've been doing that in Bahrain at the beginning of the year. But I, I think that you know, Red Bull have to be favourites going into that. Um, they've returned the circuit to its former glory and that they've taken away that silly little chicane and the final two corners of those high-speed right-handers that we, we used to race on. So I think that has to push it towards Red Bull again. Um, it really, for me, it's a question of is it Aston or is it Ferrari that are best of the rest there? Um, you know, Ferrari 
don't seem to be quite as competitive as they were this time last year. Um, that would have been a dream result if if Charles was to win in Monaco, you know, the Monaco driver uh, driving for Ferrari in his own uh, own country. But um, yeah, they, they they seem to still be a little bit half baked at the moment. Um, but I'm I'm sure they'll they'll be working hard to bring some upgrades. Yeah, just reflecting back on Monaco one last time, it it just shows that whatever level you're in in motorsports, you can have those weekends. And you know what it's like in the car. You're in there and the calls are wrong. You're hitting the wrong traffic. You're on the wrong tires. It's just like this cluster of chaos. And it happens even to the best of them. And watching Ferrari for some reason is triply as painful as any other team because you know that they sort of have it in their DNA to collapse. Uh, you must have been in the comms spots just going, what the heck is going on? Wrong calls on tires, the rain, everybody hitting in the wall. Uh, it was it was mad yeah it, it was chaotic and as you know there's nothing more difficult than driving a street circuit in in changing conditions so i was impressed that there wasn't more you know crashes um because you can get very easily caught out but yeah strategy wise um it did look as if there was a bit of uncertainty between especially carlos i think carlos Sainz was really questioning some of the the calls the team were making but which is never a good thing you know they they, they need to do a little reset don't they and and uh, find their mojo again. Mm. But I think overall, um, coming back to what you, we, we discussed earlier, it, it wasn't a classic Grand Prix in terms of lots of on-track uh, overtaking, but I think it was a, a fantastic Grand Prix in that the, you know, they were challenged in everything. They had dry running, they had draining, they had wet. Um, it, it just doesn't get any harder than that. Yeah. Well, what else are you up to outside the TV? You still got the gin company. Um, well, I've, I've got a yeah, I've got um, uh, Whisper is the television production business that uh, have shares in along with uh, Jake Humphrey and Sol yeah. Patel. So we, I think it was about 11 years ago, um, maybe a wee bit longer, we started the business and we now employ over 250 people uh, and across many different sports, So, uh, including Formula One, of course. Uh, and I have an event company called Velocity and we'll actually be um, uh, working down in, in Las Vegas for the Grand Prix. Um, we have a, a partnership with the Dre's nightclub. So looking forward to hosting guests there. And, and I believe that's just on the strip. Um, so uh, I think that's going to be a sort of a Grand Prix to potentially rival Monaco for yeah. the madness. Yeah, it will be. And we're going to be, the studio will be live all week. So we'll, we'll get you in here Excellent. and we'll also have some fun. So I think it's going to happen. Uh, have a, and go get on that billionaire's yacht and go and have, go and have a nice evening. It's you have 28 minutes to get there. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm going to have a nice dinner on, on my friend's yacht. And then actually our buddies, um, Jill and Angela and yeah. uh, Paul and Victoria, uh, I'm with them next week and a boat in Turkey. So I'm off on, off on holiday next week. So I'll be seeing Jill, Jill de Ferran. I saw him on the telly at Indianapolis, yeah. a former winner there, of course. Um, so we'll, we'll be having a few, a few little, uh, Sure, oh, a few I'm drinks. Sure and I'm down in the south of France visiting Melanie the week after Le Mans, so I might see you. Well, DC, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to see you here in Vegas. Uh, DC, by the way, is truly one of the most, not just the most accomplished British drivers. Watching his career from karting into Formula One was really uh, fun to behold, even though I was trying to do my own thing. But he definitely knows how to live life to its fullest. When I come back, I may come back as him. Anyway, up for my next guest. Well, David, thanks so much for joining me on Drive to Win. Uh, where are you right now? 
I am sitting in our house up in uh, Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, which is the village where, of course, Road America is, uh, one of the best tracks in America. Well, probably the best track in America. Uh, it's just like a mile and a half down the road. Of course, the racetrack is there because um, back in 1950, 52, 51 and 52, they had races through the streets, which turned out to be very, very successful. Uh, the, the, the downside was that the second one was so successful that the governor of the state of Wisconsin said, maybe 100,000 people sitting alongside this road. This road is not such a great idea with things like C-types and HK120s rushing by at 140 miles an hour. So a local businessman who had a quarry had about 800 acres up the road, which he was going to turn into a quarry, instead of which they turned it into Road America. And, of course, it's just in 1955. So uh, coming up for, uh, a, you know, anniversary in a couple of years. Long time. But, of course, as you know, you've been here, Justin. It is one of the best uh, best racetracks in the States. Great for overtaking. It's long, over four miles. IndyCar drivers love it. And, of course, they'll be here just two weeks away. How fun. Well, good job that the mayor wasn't in charge of Monaco, uh, all those years ago, because God knows where the racetrack would have been. But it's it endured, um, and we watched it on Sunday morning. I'm, I know you did. Every one of us, when we watch Monaco, I think is transported a little bit back in time, and we just heard from DC about that. What does Monaco mean to you when you watch it on the te telly? Well, it's, it's a real uh, mix of feelings, isn't it? Because you know that there's going to be little or no overtaking. Uh, it is very professional. So obviously Saturday afternoon is the crucial time. And I did watch qualifying, and it was one of the most electrifying qualifying sessions I've ever seen. I mean, the times were so close. And uh, that last lap of Verstappen's when he pulled it all out in the last sector, having been about two tenths behind Alonso, uh, was was absolutely amazing, and the whole field was very very close because it's a short track. But there's a lot goes on there. I mean, there's a lot of corners, gradient change, a lot of gear shifting, which of course today is pretty simple. But nevertheless, there's a lot of action going on, uh, and for all those cars to be so close together was quite extraordinary. The downside of that, of course, is that overtaking becomes more and more and more difficult uh, as the cars are so close together. But the race, actually, it went as we predicted. Although Alonso was stellar by uh, keeping up with Verstappen, who had the medium tyres on, and Alonso had the hard tyre. And he was, you know, stayed within a couple of seconds of Verstappen. But, of course, Verstappen's real brilliance came out when he ended up doing 52 laps on those medium tyres, where their target was about uh, 32 laps, I believe, or round between like 20 and 30 laps for the medium tyre. He managed to get 52 laps out of them and was still lapping very fast. It was outrageous to watch. We we kind of analysed it a bit earlier, but you, I'm going to say you've been around, these, David, a long time. Um, you've done the TV, especially around Formula One, for decades. You've seen the greats come and go and you've seen their careers ebb and flow. Where does Max rate in the pantheon of the great racing drivers? Well, obviously, he's going to rank 
very, very highly. Uh, I was lucky enough to be calling the race in Spain uh, for his first drive for Red Bull as opposed to Toro Rosso, which he promptly won, holding off uh, Raikkonen for many, many laps. And just, I mean, at the time, he was 17. And, I mean, he just judged it to perfection. I mean, he slowed Raikkonen down through the last chicane before you take the last flying right-hander onto the straight at Barcelona, which, incidentally, is one of the longest straights in Formula 1. The Ferrari had more power than the Red Bull, and it also had the DRS. And in spite of all that, <laughs> Max Verstappen held him off. So you knew right then that the kid was going to win a lot of races. And it took him a lot longer to win his first race than I thought, actually, to win more races uh, than I thought he would. But I think he's going to be right up there with uh, people like with Hamilton, Schumacher, Senna, uh, Sterling Moss, Jimmy Clark, Fangio, Mario Andretti. And uh, he's going to be right up there as one of the greatest. And, of course, he's obviously going to win this year uh, at a walk. Uh, obviously, next year, one hopes that Ferrari, Mercedes, and Aston Martin will have really got their act together uh, and will be much more competitive. But at the moment, I'm afraid that nobody is even close to him. We've, we've seen a lot of what I consider to be absolute uh, bull, uh, this great battle between him and Perez. Because Perez's dad said, oh, yeah, my son, he's right up there. He, he's won two races and he can win the championship and it's going to be just like Senna and Prost. Sorry, Dad. It ain't going to be even vaguely like Senna and Prost because Verstappen, whenever, I mean, he is a clear, a clear half to three-quarters of a second a lap quicker than Sergio. Uh, and it's that simple. Uh, it's going to be a no contest. And after Sergio's desperate weekend in uh, in Monaco, uh, that's really going to, that's obviously opened the gap up enormously now. Uh, we're going to have to count on Alonso to try and challenge him, it yeah. looks like. So, yeah. Um, yeah, he's going to be right up there. You know, it was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, that is the mark of the real great. So it's like Lewis, who's, I can't wait to watch them, him come back on song, which he is. Talk about that in a sec, but it's the way these the greats are able to extract something from the car just when their teammate thinks they get onto an equal footing or the competition. I mean, I was watching that qualifying, David, like you were, and I'm like, God, oh, good on Alonso. I almost threw on my green shirt, and then I'm I'm glad I didn't because there's no way he was going to do that in the last sector, and then he did it. So you see it time and time again in sports cars in Formula One. The real greats just have that thing in their pocket yeah. that you can't even put a finger on. I, I wonder if the engineers look at it and go, how the hell did they do that, right? Well, you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, the greats, it doesn't matter what it is um, because that last sector at Monte Carlo is, is a very short sector. So, I mean, he pulled out two tenths in a, in a very short sector of track. Um, and, of course, he makes very few mistakes now. I mean, he, he made a few when he started, but then everybody makes mistakes. I mean, that's the way they learn. Uh, we were always talking about, um, we, when I was with, working with Steve Matchett, he said, yeah, well, when he came to drive for Benetton, we had about four chassis we got through in the first year. 
because Schumacher made a lot of mistakes. But once, but once he got going, I mean, Schumacher rarely makes a mistake. You very, very see Hamilton make a mistake when it matters. Uh, it's sometimes, I mean, this year in qualifying, yeah, uh, well, not qualifying, but in the FP3, he hit the wall at Mirabeau. He usually chooses a better time to do that. But, but these guys, they don't make many mistakes, and yet they can extract just that little bit extra. I remember when Bob Varsha and I were doing, uh, we were doing Formula One for ESPN, the first go-round back in uh, 86, 7, 8, 9, and 90. And then Senna came along, and we watched many qualifiers. And we went to, in those days, we went to all the races. And we watched Senna qualify. And, you, and his teammate would be Gerhard Berger. And Gerhard Berger would be right through the corner, wheel up on the curb, dust flying everywhere, and look incredibly fast. Then Senna would just go, and he'd be like that far off the edge of the road, and he'd be that far off from the apex, uh, two seconds quicker. I mean, he was uncanny in qualifying, uh, Ed Senna. He really was. And, um, and Verstappen, and so was Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton's qualifying runs were, were always absolutely amazing. As you say, at the end of Q1, he'd do whatever, and he might be lying second or third or fourth. And then last lap, qualifying Q3, boom, there yeah, he is yeah. on the pole, which obviously you can see by his pole record now, which is just extraordinary. Um, and Verstappen is starting to catch up. I mean, um, a lot of wins and a lot of poles. And honestly, I, I just don't see him not being on the pole or not winning between now and the end of the season. I mean, I just don't know who's going to stop him. I mean, obviously, he could have a mechanical failure, um, but I just don't see what's going to stop him, quite honestly. Talk about what you mentioned back in the day. You used to go to the races, but that was as they do now, which is great. And I think the broadcast is all yeah. the better for it. I think their new TV package in Formula One is outstanding. The global broadcast team, you've got these incredible guys like DC and, you, you know, you see uh, Rosberg, all their fantastic talent that won championships and races that are now doing the TV. I think it's wonderful. What do you think about it? And how does it relate to the days when you guys used to turn up? Because I'm sure you were on exactly the same money back then as, as like DC or... Or any of the Jensen, right? Well, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but, um, of course, we did most of our races from a studio. Uh, and we did tend to try and Americanize the broadcast, especially when uh, Haas came along. And we also tried to always not talk down to the real fans and the aficionados. But at the other time, you've also got to try and make it interesting to the average spectator. And since I have retired, uh, in other words, pushed out, uh, I have so many people come up to me at places like Road America when I'm watching you know, go to the IndyCar race. People still come up to me and say, oh, my God, I wish you guys were still doing it. Because me and my wife, we watch it. And the only reason my wife watches Formula One is because of you guys. She used to like you lot so much just – Whatever the race was like, she liked to watch the race because of you guys. So, you know, I look back on that with fond memories, but the fact is that I think the Sky team are extraordinary. David Croft could probably uh, 
bring it down a rev or two because he's basically on the rev limiter when the lights go green. And unfortunately, if something happens, he's got nowhere to go really because he's already there. Martin Bundler, of course, is excellent and has a terrifically dry wit, which usually goes by unnoticed. Uh, and all of them, Anthony Davidson, Karen Chanter, I love Anthony Davidson and Karen on that uh, on the on the board on the TV screen where they do all the slow mo just show you exactly what happened and where things came off the car. And, and no, they're a very, very, very good team. Um, obviously, Formula One do all the, the TV shots and the and the, uh, and the, uh, the directing and the producing. Which, again, for us, was always just a little bit difficult because nowadays when these guys are talking on the screen, the director will say, and lying in fourth spot is so-and-so, or let's go back to race for fifth, or whatever. Whereas when we did it, because we weren't directly in touch with the race director, we had our own director in the studio, but we didn't have a race director. We did have a director at the track. So we didn't know when camera shots were going to change, whereas these guys know when it's going to happen because they're told. Yeah, they get a lot more information uh, than you did. But it's the same when we were doing sports cars or Le Mans. You're relying on quite a little bit of information, but things should improve, and the in-cars are so incredible. I, I mean, I really love it. But I had a real chuckle the first time I saw, you know, the uh, um, Mercedes up on the crane and you could see the under tree, and then you saw Perez's car the same. I bet you smiled as well because all the social media was indicating and following the story that apparently is 60% of the performance of the car comes from the underbody. And, you know, there's security to stop anyone looking at it. And then they go and lift the bloody car up above all the cameramen. Did you see that? It was wild. I, I mean, crazy. <laughs> Apparently, Toto Wolf went completely crackers when he saw that. But <laughs> right now, at the moment, who cares what the underside of the Mercedes looks like? It's not working <laughs> very well anyway. So <laughs> I don't expect I don't expect Adrian Newey looked looked up and said, "Oh, well, that's what they're doing." Isn't it? Now, if they'd done that to Perez's car, lifted it way up. Well, they did, David. I they did. Imagine the Mercedes guys would have been taking photographs. Well, no, apparently they did. They've got a picture of of the Red Bull on a lift. And apparently some of the team, you know, all the teams will pay photographers to get a photograph of the underside of the car. So um, I'm, I'm sure they're analyzing in every way they can with all their computational stuff to, oh, yeah. to look at the bottom of the cars because that's like seeing under the skirt, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I was more worried about I thought, why do they lift Hamilton's car so high? Surely they just need to lift it off the road and put it on the back of the truck. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the damn thing was like, if it had dropped, it would have gone off like a bomb. And it hit the <laughs> they said, I think Toto Wolf said, it's like the operator was working for Cirque du Soleil as he's flying the, the car through the <laughs> yeah. air. So really yeah. funny. Well, coming up for Spain this, this weekend, obviously I'm, I can't even pronounce it. They say Gran Premio de España right? Um, it's always a good track and totally different from Monaco in every way. Everyone's bringing up grades. What are you looking forward to from, you know, from Monaco going into the Spanish Grand Prix? Well, I'm hoping against hope that the Mercedes 
and Ferrari uh, are bringing a lot of... Well, actually, Mercedes took all their changes to Monte Carlo. Uh, and, of course, they kept saying before they went, well, it's not going to really make much difference in Monte Carlo because it's not much of a downforce track and it's, uh, and it's a funny little twisty track. So the stuff we've changed is not going to help much at Monte Carlo. And Ferrari had a whole, have got a whole bunch of uh, mods coming up, new rear suspension, new side pods, new God knows everything, probably a new floor. Yeah. Uh, well, it'll be a new floor now. They've seen what the Red Bull floor's like. And uh, so hopefully these improvements bring them a bit closer to Red Bull. But of course, the Red Bull is so, so fast. Have they actually got more speed left in the dab, I think? So it could be that uh, everybody's just right back to square one. And, of course, obviously Red Bull are making modifications and, and bringing uh, upgrades to the track as well. So, But I am hoping really that uh, – but what is bad news for everybody is the incredible speed of the Red Bull on straights. Well, <coughs> Barcelona's got straights. It's got one very long one and, uh, and one medium-sized one coming out of turn nine down to turn 10. That is a pretty good straight. And, of course, you come onto it at a hell of a lick. And the uh, Red Bull seem to have got that bit of the uh, equation uh, really tied it up. And I think, you know, we hear about Verstappen and we hear about Lewis Hamilton. And, but the guy that we don't hear much about is Adrian Newey. When you think of his record, um, it is absolutely extraordinary. I don't know how many world championships he's won, nine or ten. Won the world championship twice with Williams, two or three times with McLaren. Uh, I mean, he's won it four times with uh, Sebastian Vettel. Uh, and now he's going for his third one with, um, with Verstappen. So he's an amazing, an amazing person. And... Um, one of the greatest Adrian Newey stories I've heard comes from Mario Andretti. And it would be, what, like 1981 or whatever, when Adrian was working over here in, in the States on IndyCar. And he worked with Bobby Rahal. And he also worked with, um, <coughs> with uh, Andretti. And it was the year that Andretti led every lap and the engine blew with about 10 to go. And what happened was on the grid, the cars are lined up on the grid at Indianapolis for the 500. Adrian Newey wanders out of the pit complex, sort of does, uh, looks at the sun, looks at the clouds. Uh, so I think we're going to put uh, a couple more hundred pounds on the front springs. And Mario goes, what? And everybody, everybody else is easy. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether they're on the pole, but they're on the front row. So they changed the springs, and Mario led every lap. And with about 10 or 20 to go, they said, hey, Mario, you better just ease off a bit. You're nearly a lap up on the field. So just bring the revs back down a little bit, and uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to blow the thing up, do we, at this stage of the game. So just ease off a bit. Well, he eased off, and apparently that easing off did blow the engine because it put it in some harmonic balance. Somewhat. Instead of pulling 9,000, he's only pulling 8,4 or 8,3 or whatever. But it put it in some unfortunate harmonic balance and it did blow up. But he said, uh, 
He said, I could never get over Adrian Newey just walking out there right on the grid race morning. He said, well, I think we ought to put the springs in a couple of hundred pounds more. <laughs> and it worked. It, it, he probably was, before air density sensors, he was probably going, yeah, the air's denser. This is going to cause more downforce. The front springs are going to uh, go down. That's under what he did. He looked at the humidity, looked at the clouds, looked at the sun, licked his finger, held yeah. up for the weather. And that was it. Blow, so, yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> we talk about we talk about how much money the drivers get. Can you imagine what his paycheck must be? He could write his own check. I mean, write anywhere down the paddock. Oh, I'm sure they pay him probably 10 million a year or maybe more because, uh, you know, Max is getting, what, nearly 50 million a year or something, 45 million a year now. Greg, you know, you, you know Greg, our son, Greg. He was saying yesterday, we were watching the Indy 500, not yesterday before, after we'd watched Monaco. And uh, he had read some bit of news um, that Max Verstappen was the third highest paid sportsman under the age of 25. I think it was a soccer, a soccer player, a basketball player, and then Max, uh, the one of the wealthiest under. So that means... <laughs> He got a lot of money. A lot, <laughs> Hell of, a lot of money. A lot, even of more than you and Derek, probably. Isn't that crazy? I know. I said to everyone else on the plane. Someone said to me last week. They said, "Did you do you do NASCAR?" And I went, "If I did NASCAR, I wouldn't be on the plane next to you, would I? On JetBlue, I'd be on my own plane. <laughs> same as same as those guys." David, listen, it's so good, always good. I'd really love you to to come on regularly because you you know so much. You follow it. You've been there. You've done it. Um, you're, you're a great friend to the Bell family. Um, thanks so yeah. much for, for being on the show, mate. I led you astray when you were a young boy. And I'm trying to lead you astray. Well, now you're leading me astray. Yeah, that is the way it should be. All right, David, yeah. lovely. Enjoy the race Thank this you. weekend. Speak, speak to you very soon. Thanks a lot. Well, Bye. of course, that is it for the end of this show. Um, two great guests and really with an insight into what Formula One means, especially coming off the back of Monaco into this high-speed future at the Barcelona Spanish Grand Prix. Now, we will be here next week to dissect that. Again, got some amazing guests. But remember, in a few months, it's all culminating right here in Las Vegas, the 22nd race of the championship. And while, as David said, we might know who the winner's going to be by then, there are so many spaces up for grabs. Every championship position is tens of millions of dollars. So everyone coming into Vegas will be rolling the proverbial dice when it comes to the action out on track. And you can be a part of it in every way. Just go to winlasvegas.com forward slash experiences slash F1. Check out the packages. They got three great ones to be here. It is the epicenter of all things connected to Formula One in Las Vegas. And as for me, I can't wait to be here. We'll have celebrity guests in all through the week. And then most of the drives are staying here. So it's going to be very cool. Thanks for joining us. Uh, keep in touch on social. Let us know what you think. If you've got any good ideas for segments, uh, I'm having a blast. I hope you are too. I'll see you next week.